0: Years and years ago, in a fit of despair, wrote a psalm that we refer to these days as a messianic psalm. So let's start this morning by turning to Psalm 22 in your Bibles. We're continuing to read through the book of Mark verse by verse, and I have tried through this study of the book of Mark, I have tried to let Mark tell his own story. I have tried to not do too much harmonizing between Mark and the other gospel writers. But we are now at the point, as I said last week, where we are talking about the very essential elements of what Christianity is all about. We're at the very core of the gospel now. We're at the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so, who knows when we'll be back in this exact topic In this exact gospel, so we're going to take our time through it, and I am going to allow the other gospel writers to fill in some blanks. Last week, we looked at some of Luke's account. This morning, we're going to look at some of John's account as we work our way through Mark's account, because the details matter here. At this point, we're talking about the most important event in the history of humankind, People have come and gone. People have been born. People have died. Billions of people have populated this planet and are all gone. And their deaths cumulatively added up to nothing important. They were here. They died. They're gone. Most of the people who were ever here on the planet, we don't know their names. We don't know where they were. We don't know where they lived. But there is one person who lived on the planet, who is the son of God. And so his death accomplished what we ourselves cannot accomplish. His death, his burial, his resurrection, the essential elements of the gospel create the hope that we as Christians walk around with. As we look at this increasingly crazy world, as we look at this completely nonsensical world and society that we're in, It would be easy for us to throw up our hands and say, well, forget it. It's just all madness out there. But because we know that Christ lived, Christ died, Christ raised again, because we know that it gives us hope that when our death happens, we're going to be okay with the Father. We're not going to stand in front of the Father and be judged, which we rightly deserve, Everybody in this room, especially Leon, really deserves, everybody really deserves for God to judge them and to judge them harshly because the things we've done, the things we've said, the things we thought, the way we've behaved, we all fall short of the perfect standard of God's holiness and righteousness. And so there's just no way that we're going to be able, in and of ourselves, to do enough good stuff to make God say, well, okay, good enough, come on into my holy, righteous kingdom. You gave it a good shot. What you need in order to stand before God and not fry is perfect holiness. What you need is the perfect, righteous standard that only Christ accomplished. And the best of the religious humans on the planet, when he was on the planet, were the Pharisees who were trying to keep the law. And he said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, you're not good enough. And they, who were trying, aren't good enough. And then to make things worse, he says in John 3, you need to be born Again, which means that your first birth wasn't adequate. It's not sufficient. Human beings, unfortunately, have this sense that just because I'm here, I'm owed something. By the very fact that I exist. Everybody who's got kids has at some point heard their children say to them, I didn't ask to be born. (laughs) And the answer to that is, yeah, that's right, but you're here now. You're owed nothing just because you're here. And so we humans in our ego, in our pride, in our arrogance, we start thinking God owes us something because we're here. And what he owes you is righteous judgment. What he owes you is the exact thing that you have indebted him to. You have accomplished your sinfulness. He now owes you judgment. And so the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what we're in the middle of right now, the beauty of what we're going to read this morning is that God does render that judgment that you're owed, except that he renders it to somebody else. And he renders it to his son, who takes on the cumulative wrath and judgment of God on behalf of Leon, who does deserve it. And that's brilliant. That's wonderful. That's magnificent. That's beyond our human comprehension. Because every other man-made religion on the planet will tell you, if you want to get to whatever the reward is, if you want to get to nirvana, if you want to get to whatever it is they're offering you, then you got to get to work you got to do the stuff. And if you just do the stuff sincerely enough, then whatever God they're talking about will reward you for how hard you worked. Only Christianity, unique in the annals of history, only Christianity says you can't do it. No matter how hard you try, you can't do it. Because the standard is so infinitely high that you can't reach it. So, what are you going to do? You need somebody to stand between you, the sinner, and God, the perfect holy judge. And that's exactly what Christ did when he hung on the cross. He got between you and God. And he reconciled you and God. Paul would say, not that God needed to be reconciled. God's fine. God's fine by himself. For infinite time past. He was perfectly content in himself and in his trinity, and he was willing to exist up there. He didn't make you because he was lonely. He didn't make you because he needs somebody to be mad at. He made you because he's glorifying himself in the enterprise of making people and then bringing them to himself through his grace, through his mercy, through his goodness, his kindness. It's all about him. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And that's why you're here. And what you're going to get, this is the best part, what you're going to get isn't what you deserve. So as soon as you start that, I deserve stuff just because I'm here. Well, you deserve hell forever. So, okay, there. Now you got what you deserve. But the beauty of Christianity, the wonder of the gospel, is that you're not going to get what you deserve. Instead, you're going to get what you couldn't possibly earn. Because somebody paid your debt. And then somebody stood in the gap between you and God. Somebody reconciled you and God so that you can stand before God and be accepted eternally in his heaven. And you didn't do it. And that's grace, 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 grace. So as I began to say, and as we've been seeing these several weeks. All of the events leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, these things that have been determined before the foundation of the world, have also been predicted, prophesied, and written down in the Old Testament. And sometimes the prophets didn't even know what they were talking about or who they were talking about. They just knew that the Spirit of God was teaching them that there was going to be A son of God who was also going to be a son of man who was going to die and yet was going to live. And as confusing as that all was, Jesus came to the planet and did exactly all the things that the prophet said. And he kept pointing backwards to the scripture and saying, this is happening because scripture says so. And scripture has to be fulfilled, he keeps saying. He's absolutely saturated with scripture. And so even on the cross, even at the end of his sojourn here on the planet, even at the end of all that, he's still quoting scripture from the cross and he quotes David. Why? Why would he quote David? Why would he quote a psalm at this moment? Well, because it's a psalm that includes details that David wrote that David can't be talking about himself. David wasn't under fear of death when he wrote this, but he wrote it from the perspective of somebody who was in fear of death. David never had anybody cast lots for his clothing, but he says that's what they did. He's writing messianically. He's writing prophetically about the Messiah to come. When the Messiah comes from the cross, he quotes the first verse of the psalm we're about to read so that everybody would get the connection, so that he could say, I am that son of David. I am the one that is satisfying and fulfilling what David, the first true king of Israel after God's own heart, he wrote about me that's what I'm doing here, that's what I'm satisfying, that's what I'm fulfilling, it's all Bible, 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 Scripture, 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 and that's why we continue to just pound Scripture here at GCA, because that's how Jesus did it, so I figure that's a pretty good model. Okay, all of that was introduction. The sad part for me, not for you, the sad part for me is that yesterday when we were in this building putting up the furniture again and setting everything up, uh, Jeff was very clear about, do you want the clock back on the wall? And uh, I said, no, And, and he put it up there anyway. So it's up there glaring at me, but that was all introduction. We're starting at Psalm 22. We're going to read that Jesus, while he was on the cross, said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is the opening line in Hebrew of what David wrote here. Translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, at what point in David's terrestrial life did God ever abandon him? At what point can he say, why have you forsaken me? Well, he couldn't really. But yet he could write it prophetically about the Messiah to come. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now among the Jewish rabbis, they believe that, at least of the converted ones, they believe that when Jesus quoted that verse, he was intending to point out this whole psalm, that he wanted people to make reference back to the whole of what David wrote. So let's read the first part of it because it has details that are unmistakable. And yet details, tiny little details, minutiae that came true that demonstrate that Christ was who he said he was. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day. But thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And yet thou art holy. O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. Verse 5. To thee they cried out and they were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me and they separate with the lip and they wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You're going to find that that's exactly what happens to Jesus on the cross. He is widely mocked and people say, come down from there. If you are the son of God, deliver yourself. (coughs) David predicts that that's what's going to happen. But David at this point can't be talking about himself. Verse 9. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust When upon my mother's breast and upon thee I was cast from birth, thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. But bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me, and they opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. David never went through that. David can't be talking about himself, but he is perfectly describing what crucifixion would feel like. At the time that David wrote this, crucifixion did not exist. It wasn't even a thing yet. And yet he's describing what it would be like to be crucified while you're being mocked. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Well, when we read about the account of Jesus, that's the very thing he's going to cry right at the end. I thirst because his tongue is cleaving to his mouth. And thou dost lay me In the dust of death, verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. By the way, the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. And who surrounded Jesus at the point of his death? Who accomplished it? The Romans, the dogs, actually did it. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. When did that happen to David? It didn't. And yet here he is describing Jesus being nailed to the cross. Here he is describing the fact that they're going to pierce him with a sword in the side. Here he is describing him as the pierced one so that Zechariah can pick it up later and say they're going to look on him whom they pierced. And again remember at this point such punishment doesn't even exist. Crucifixion doesn't exist. It's actually the Persians who first created crucifixion. And then the Romans perfected it because the Persians didn't make it painful enough. So they made it even worse and introduced the idea of nailing people to a cross. Here David's describing something that doesn't even exist yet. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones And they look and they stare at me. Look at verse 18. And they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Okay, well what we're going to read in the Gospels. Is that exact thing happened. Jesus was wearing a robe. An outer garment. That was woven all the way through. It hadn't been sewn together. Which made it a very valuable robe. And so rather than tear it apart, and divide it up among the Roman soldiers, they decided to keep it intact and throw lots to decide who would get it. Do you think when they did that, when they looked at that robe and said, you know, we really shouldn't tear this up, it's a beautiful piece of clothing, let's cast lots and decide who gets it, do you think they, of their own free will, at that moment, knew they were fulfilling scripture? Let's fulfill some prophecy, guys. What do you say? Let's cast lots for some clothing. No, they didn't know, but they did it. Why then? Why did they do the very thing that David said they were going to do? Why then was Jesus wearing a robe of that type? Why was Jesus wearing an expensive robe that just happened to be knitted all the way through? Didn't Jesus know that's what he was originally wearing? Of course he did. He was busy fulfilling scripture to the detail. If he had been wearing a robe at that moment, an outer garment at that moment that had been sewn together that could be ripped apart and the fabric could be divided up among the Roman soldiers, well, then that scripture doesn't come true. And if that scripture doesn't come true, then you can't believe any of scripture. If that prophecy doesn't happen, then prophecy might or might not. You have no confidence. So that had to happen. So think about all the details. Think about the minutia. There had to be a robe. He had to have that robe on. They had to end up with that robe, and then they had to look at it and say, let's not divide it up. What if one of them had decided, I don't care that it's woven all the way through. I want my bit. Let's cut it up. Well, then that prophecy doesn't come true. But the prophecy was they were going to cast lots for his clothing. That never happened to David, but it happened exactly to Jesus. And the people who did it, did it not knowing they were fulfilling prophecy in scripture, but they did it anyway because God is, what's that word I keep thinking? Sovereign! Because God's completely in charge of everything, even those who are his enemies. Even those who don't recognize him as Lord. He is nevertheless Lord. I don't care what you think of God or whether you think God is up there or whether you think God is holy. And you know what? God doesn't care what you think about it either because he knows what he's doing and he knows who he is. And even your evil unbelief is written about in the Bible. It's already described that there are going to be people who in their ego, in their evil, would not believe that this is the God who exists. There are going to be people who believe that they can be good enough, that they can work hard enough, that they can satisfy that righteous holy God. He doesn't care. He's going to judge them anyway. Because God is absolutely in control of even the minutia. And that's really, really good news. Conrad got out of the car this morning. We walked out to bring him in, and he said, I was really sick this week. And he said, but but I'm here. God's in control. Why? Where does he get that kind of hope? I had a divot cut out of my head this week. And yet I knew one of two things is going to happen. This is going to heal up and I'm going to be fine. Or it's going to take my life. Either way, I'm okay. Okay, where do I get that kind of hope? Because I am convinced of an absolutely sovereign, gracious God. That will give you the confidence to get through the times that nothing else could satisfy you these people here had no concept of God and were still casting lots for his clothing because he's in charge and the more you see how in charge he is the more you ought to get on your face in front of him because he's going to be in charge whether you like it or not I didn't mean to look right at you as I said that But for some reason, I feel you need it today. (laughs) So they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Verse 19. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen and thou dost answer me I will tell of thy name to my brethren and in the midst of the gathering in the midst of the assembly by the way when the uh, Greek version of the New Testament was written the word that was translated assembly here was translated ecclesia in the Greek version of it which is the word that we use for church In other words, in the midst of the church, I will praise thee. I will tell you, I will tell about your name in the midst of my brethren. And you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction. Neither has he hidden his face from him. And when he cried for him for help, God heard. From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Okay, now why have I continued reading all this for one simple reason? I'm going to ask you one simple question. Did the Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garment? Yes. Was that predicted in David's soul? Well, then that means all the rest of this has to come true. If that detail came true, all the rest comes true. And David at this point goes past just the death of Christ to the exaltation of Christ. And the kingdom to come. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before thee. That's the satisfaction of the promise that was made to Abraham in you. All the families, all the tribes of the earth are going to be blessed through Christ. All the families of all the nations come to worship before God for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nation's. And all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship and all those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Why? Because every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God the Father. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive is going to worship, is going to eat, is going to worship. Even those who die are going to be raised again. General resurrection. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations and they will come and they will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. That's all coming. The kingdom promises are good. The heavenly promises are good. The resurrection promises are good because if we are satisfied that they actually threw lots for his garment. And that was actually accomplished in time and in history Then everything else we just read has to be accomplished in time and in history. You get my premise? You with me so far? Yes. Good. That was still all introduction. Turn to the book of John. Go to John 19. We're going to read John's narrative first before we get to Mark. This will just about pick up where we left off last week. John 19, starting at verse 1. Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him for being King of the Jews. And they gave him blows to the face. So they were punching him. And you're talking about Roman centurions here. You're talking about big guys that are punching him in the face. Now last week, I know I emphasized it, but I have to emphasize it again. These were men. These were worms. These were part of his creation. These were just creatures. These were sinners. And yet he allowed his creation to hit him. He's the son of God. He's the only holy righteous one. He's the only infinitely good one and their lives, the next breath in their nostrils was in his hand and he allowed them to punch him. That's humility. Next time you want an example of humility because somebody has offended you and you're feeling a little put off and you figure you've done me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong. And then you think, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be a Christian, and Christianity claims I'm supposed to be humble. Christianity says I'm supposed to look on the things of others and not after the things of myself. I'm supposed to esteem every man is better than myself, but doggone it, that guy just did me wrong. If you want an inspiration for why you should be humble, remember the rest of Philippians 2, that though he was equal with God, he did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped at, something that was robbery if he took it, and yet he humbled himself all the way to the ignominious death on the cross, and so Paul could write, let that mind be in you. Well, here it is again. John says that he allowed people to hit him though he had the power at any moment to call to his father who would send legions of angels to defend him. And like a lamb before his shearers is dumb he didn't speak a word and he allowed them to punish him. Why would he allow Roman soldiers who are worms to punch him? For Leon. I'm going to keep using Leon as my example this morning because I've already picked on him. Why? He didn't deserve it. He did it so that Leon could be saved. He did it so that the punishment that was poured out on him would be adequate so that you don't have to go through the wrath of God. So he accomplished his own death, and he accomplished and allowed his own creatures to beat him. Don't forget that. They gave him blows to the face, verse 4, and Pilate came out again and said to all of them, to the Jewish leaders, behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus, therefore, came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. I mean, he's bleeding in front of you. He's been punched. He's swollen up. He, He's been beaten. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So the Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Remember what we saw last week? That was the charge that they finally thought they were getting him on. He was blaspheming. He was making himself equal with God. When they couldn't find any two witnesses that could agree with each other, they finally said, are you the son of God? When he said, I am, they said, what more evidence do we need? Forget the witnesses. That's blasphemy. He deserves to die for that blasphemy. They think that's their rock-solid case. So they say to the Roman leader, they say, look, he, according to our law, has made himself out to be the son of God, thinking that that would make Pilate go, oh, yeah, then definitely let's kill him. What does John say it does? It makes Pilate more scared because Pilate realizes I might be responsible for the death of the son of God. That can't be good for me. The Jews answered and said, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And when Pilate, therefore, heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Why would John write even more afraid? Because he was initially afraid because his wife had said to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. She had had a dream have nothing to do with him. And this is part of the reason, I think, that Pilate keeps trying to say, look, he's innocent, let him go. It's why Pilate ends up washing his hands, saying, I wash my hands of this thing. Because Pilate is genuinely afraid the way the Jews aren't. But it's a Gentile who actually is fearful that this might actually be the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was even more afraid and he entered into the praetorium again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. I think Pilate was trying to say, look, are you from heaven? Are you the son of God? What, what's happening here? I'm in the middle of a drama I didn't even ask to be in. The Jews are asking me to kill you and you might be the son of God and you might be the king of the Jews. Where do you come from? And Jesus says nothing. Pilate, therefore, said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Don't you know I'm the one in charge here? Don't you know that I'm Pilate? I'm the procurator. I have the power of Rome behind me. I'm the important guy. And Jesus says, you have no authority over me. And that's true. That's correct. You have no authority over me. I'm allowing myself to go through this. Jesus answered, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Look what Jesus is doing. Jesus recognizes Pilate's reticence. He understands that Pilate is trying to say, I I find no guilt in him. You should let him go. And so Jesus reassures Pilate and says, those Jews that brought me to you, they have a much greater sin than you have. I recognize what's happening to you politically. I know the corner you've been backed into. So recognize that the ones who delivered me up to you, they have the greater sin. And as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. See, they're not interested in the religious argument, it's political. And they know that he's a politician. So they're going to say, you're not a friend of Caesar's unless you kill this man. We'll go tell Caesar what you did. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. There, that's their argument. So now Pilate's really cornered. And when Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement. In the Hebrew, it's called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover and it was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews behold your king and they therefore cried out away with him away with him crucify him and Pilate said to them shall I crucify your king and the chief priest answered we have no king but Caesar. These are the same guys who have been trying very hard to throw off the power and yoke of Rome. And now suddenly, just to kill Jesus. Just because of their hatred of Jesus, now all of a sudden they're Caesar lovers. Now they're like, oh no, Caesar, we're totally into Caesar. We love pizza. We're totally into Caesar. Never mind. Fine. Just see if you're still with me. So he then delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also, and he put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And therefore this inscription many of the Jews read because the place where Jesus was crucified was right near to the city, just outside the city walls. And that inscription was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek, so everybody can read it. And so the chief priests of the Jews came to Pilate and said, don't write that. Don't. See, the whole point was whatever was written above a malefactor was his charge. So that when people came by and looked at him hanging on a cross and wondered, what did he do? What do you got to do that's bad enough that you end up on a cross? The others would have insurrectionists or murder written over them. But he only had the inscription, King of the Jews. And so the Jewish leaders say, don't write that. Write he's a blasphemer. Write an actual charge up there. Say, he said he was the king of the Jews, because then it's an actual charge that would make him a blasphemer. Don't write king of the Jews. Write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. You want me to do it? That's what I'm writing. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments And made four parts, apparently four soldiers, a part for every soldier. So they were taking the garments of the malefactors and Jesus. They're ripping them apart. They're making piles, four piles, one pile for each of the guards. And also the tunic, the outer tunic that Jesus wore. And now the tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece. So they said, therefore, to one another... Let us not tear it, let us cast lots for it. To decide whose it should be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, John takes the time to say, that very decision, that very thing they did. Was because scripture had to be fulfilled. Why was Jesus hanging on a cross ultimately? Because scripture has to be fulfilled. Why did Jesus come to the planet and do miracles? Because scripture had to be fulfilled. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Because scripture had to be fulfilled. Why did he then rise up into the air and was met by the clouds? Because scripture had to be fulfilled. Why is Jesus coming back to get us? because scripture has to be fulfilled why is the kingdom still a good promise because scripture has to be fulfilled scripture has to be fulfilled even down to the details down to the minutia and therefore John points out that even their casting lots for that outer tunic was done so that the scripture might be fulfilled which reads they divided my outer garment among them and for my clothing they cast lots Do I have to drive this home any more than that? Scripture has to be fulfilled. It makes me crazy, befuddled, hornswoggled even. When I hear people read parts of the Bible and say, that part's true, but that part over there, that's not so true. That's probably not going to happen. All that future stuff, That stuff about Christ coming back. That already happened. That's already gone. Prophecy is all satisfied. Even though it wasn't satisfied the way it was written. It's still. It's satisfied in some spiritualized way. That makes me absolutely insane. Because we've just seen yet again. Another demonstration of Old Testament prophecy. Satisfied literally genuinely in time on planet Earth. That's the way. Every prophecy from the Old Testament that has actually been fulfilled, it was fulfilled literally, genuinely, in time on planet Earth. Therefore, we have every reason to expect that the whole rest of the prophecy is going to be satisfied genuinely, literally, in time on planet Earth, because we already have the demonstration of how it's going to be. Here, let me put it this way. Maybe I can make it easier for you. Henry Ford once, when he invented the Model T, he said publicly, uh, you can have a Model T in any color as long as it's black. (laughs) Because every Model T that came off the assembly line was black. Okay, so what were the chances, once you're standing at the assembly line... And you're watching these cars come off the line. There's a black one, and a black one, and a black one, and a black one, and a black one. What are the chances the next one's going to be purple? No chance. A black one. Maybe there's going to be a yellow one. No, it's a black one. It's a black one. Here's my point. Once you see everything come off the line as black cars, you can count on the next ones being black cars. Because that's all Henry Ford made. Let's... Draw the equation. The only way God does things is that he describes them, he prophesies them, and then he accomplishes them literally in time and space here on planet Earth. That's the only example we've ever found. Every example you ever find of a fulfilled scripture, of a satisfied prophecy, it's always literal, genuine, on planet Earth, in time, done. So then what are the chances that suddenly the next one is going to be different. Well, it's not. It's going to be just like all the ones that went before. Do you get my example? Yes. Therefore, the soldiers did these things because they were satisfying prophecy. But there were, standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and mary magdalene when jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom jesus loved who is the disciple who jesus loved john John. so when john and his mother were standing by the foot of the cross jesus looked down and said woman behold your son and then he said to the disciple behold your mother So, even at his moment of death, he was making sure that his mother was going to be looked after and cared for. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Why did he say, I'm thirsty? Not only because he was thirsty, but because the scripture said he was going to say that. The scripture said he was going to thirst and his tongue was going to cleave to the roof of his mouth. And because scripture already said that, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. So that anybody paying attention would go, oh yeah. Oh yeah, David said he'd say that. Yeah, David said he'd be thirsty like that. So he is satisfying scripture, but then look at that phrase that John writes Jesus knew within himself that everything had been accomplished. Everything he came to do was done. He had come to the planet for a specific reason. He spent three and a half years in ministry with his apostles, going out and teaching and doing miracles for a specific purpose to prove who he was so that he would end up on this cross. And once he was on that cross, it was accomplished he had now accomplished his own death he had now accomplished what it took so that all of those people who God had chosen before the foundation of the world would be redeemed because he knew everything was accomplished and knowing that he said I'm thirsty and a jar full of sour wine was standing by by the way what is sour wine vinegar vinegar So there was a jar of vinegar there so they put a sponge full of sour wine onto a branch of hyssop and they brought it up to his mouth and when Jesus therefore had received the wine he said to Telestai he said it is finished when you combine that with verse 28 you get he knows that everything is accomplished and then he says it's accomplished it's done it's finished. Now, whenever I talk about this word, tetelestai, I point out that it is much more than it is finished. It was actually used in Greek society in several different ways. The primary way that that word was used was in banking. And when somebody would take a loan, once that loan was paid back, completed, they would write tetelestai, because it was accomplished but also when prisoners had served out their time they would write over their charge to Telestai it's finished whatever they had to do the time they had to serve it's finished when people were in debt and they paid back the debt and they satisfied the debt it's finished when Jesus knew everything was accomplished he said it's finished So, that's a word that has a whole birth of meaning, a whole broad scope of meaning that is much more than just the work I came to do is finished. It also means the debt is paid. You have this debt to God that I began talking about an hour ago, saying, God owes you. He owes you judgment, He owes you punishment, He owes you hell forever. That's what you deserve. How are you going to pay that debt? Well, the only way you can pay that debt is to go to hell forever. Or somebody pays it for you. And he said, once he knew it was fully accomplished, it's paid. I paid it. It's done. And what's the result of that? Those of us that are in the pit, those of us that are prisoners in our own sin and our own depravity, the prisoners get released. To tetelestai the debt's paid the prisoner goes free so he's saying much much more than just i did what i came here to do he's saying i have fully accomplished the redemption of the people i died for and that as i like to say and will say again is really good news Because if you're even sort of semi-kind of like me, and I hope you're not, then you wake up some nights going, oh, no, woe is me. How could God save a wretch like me? And then just about the time I start thinking, I'm doing a little better Then I go right back to my old self again, and I'm back to my old woe is me, and I'm scared of myself again. And this is just how I live my life. And the only hope I have is that it's finished. The only hope I have isn't in me. I can gaze at my navel for days to come, and I'm not going to find anything good in there. lint maybe. I'm not going to find anything of value. I'm not going to find anything in me That would make God say close enough. But it's finished. And no amount of your sin or your depravity or your rebellion or your ego can change what's already finished. It's already done. So you can't mess it up. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's Christ that died, yea, that is risen again. See, it all comes back to that. It all comes back to Christ died. He was buried, and he rose again. And therefore, by his own declaration, it's finished. It's done. I said to you a little while ago, If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, the way the God of the Bible presents himself in his word, if that's not what you believe, God doesn't care. Because he's God all by himself. He's God completely. He doesn't care. If he loves you and if he has loved you since before the foundation of the world, he's going to teach you. He's going to instruct you. He's going to bring you along in these things. But your little wormy ant-like rebellion against him does nothing against him or his holiness or his power, his judgment, his righteousness. You have no effect on him. He might affect you, but you have no effect on him. Same way. If it's finished, it's finished and you have no effect on it. You can't change it. If God is out to get you, he's going to get you. And if he's out to save you, he saved you. I used to hear Elder Ward stand in his pulpit. I really am done, I promise. That darn clock of Jeff's. I used to hear Elder Ward in my earlier days, he would stand in his pulpit, throw his chest out, put his arms all akimbo. And he would stand up there just as bold as could be. And he would say, I'm saved. <laughs> and everybody would shout and cheer. And Back in those days where I was really just kind of learning, when he would say that, I would, I would think, I wish I had that boldness. I wish I had that confidence because every time I would hear him say, I'm saved, I would think, yeah, but you don't know me, man, you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've done, God knows, well, here's the point, it's a lot of years later and, and I'm more familiar with what the Bible actually says now. And I'm more confident in what my Savior has actually accomplished now. And I'm more convinced than ever that what He accomplished is the finishing, is the accomplishment of the salvation of all His people. And I'm here to tell you today I'm saved. Yes, amen. Way, way, way saved. Because I'm a way, way, way bad sinner. It would take a way, way, way good salvation to save somebody like me. And he did it all. And he did it perfectly. And he did it completely. And he actually did it in time, literally, on planet Earth. He came and accomplished the salvation of all his people. And I hope when you walk out of here today that you can walk out with that in your head, I'm
1: saved.
0: Because if that ever permeates you, you'll never stop glorifying him. You'll never stop thanking him and praising him for being so good to a wretch like you that he would convince you that you're saved. You got it? Can I get a hearty amen? Amen. There, that's more like it. Freedom. (laughs) Freedom. Freedom. Genuine freedom. Any questions about that? Any questions about that section of scripture? Yes, sir. Sandy. The thing
1: I want to ask is, when Christ was on the cross, is it safe
0: I would put it this way. I would use the Pauline language, which is if we died with him, then we live with him. So the same way that he died and was buried and then resurrected, we're called to die to ourselves, which is why he uses the language of mortify the deeds of the flesh. That means kill him. So our old man is dying daily and the new man the born again man is living ever living so less of me more of christ as a result so when you ask did we suffer with him and die with him i would say to that degree to the pauline degree i would say yes but paul uses it like a parallel to say christ died now you die Christ lived again. Now you're going to live again, and in that aspect, I would agree with what you said. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Did you ever hand up, Mark, or were you just waving at me? I was waving. Oh, hi. It's good to see you. Anything else? All right, Micah. Well, first, say goodbye to the internet people. Goodbye. 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 Say goodbye to yourselves.
1: (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God
0: and study His sovereign grace.